Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member in an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with a nice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. This is episode three, our third and final episode in the big Bertha 
of a podcast with Daphne Corder on dyslexia. We have gone all the way through a, a kind of primer on dyslexia, what it is, how it occurs, um, good description of dyslexia. Then we've talked about comorbidities, things that happen that oftentimes come with dyslexia, like dysgraphia, dyscalculia, ADHD, etc. And today we get into the meat of the title of Daphne's presentation, um, which is called, How Do I Know If They're Doing It Right? So dyslexia intervention, what are the best interventions? What do they look like? How are they supposed to be implemented? How can I find that information out? And what do I do if they aren't doing it correctly? This is the information that people want, that people need. So tune in. We're starting right off the bat with some really good information from Daphne. I hope this is super helpful. Okay, so let's carry on then, Daphne, and talk about remediation. This is like what people are here for. So um, is dyslexia difficult to remediate? Well, the answer's in our next slide. Teaching, it, teaching reading is like rocket science. So Louisa Motes, who's very well known in this world, uh, wrote a great article about it. It really is retraining the brain, okay? You saw in the earlier slides that it's neurobiological in nature, and so we have to look at it in that, the, the remediation of it in light of what we know about dyslexia. So um, it is, it, it does need to be taught a certain way. It has to be uh, multi-sensory. It builds upon itself. It, you know, goes from smaller, easier concepts to more complex concepts. So they all have to build one upon a one upon another in order to, um, to really see the progress. I love that. It's racket, racket science. Okay. I know. So here's the big, here's the big question. How do we teach children to, to read? How do kids learn how to read? And what do we do with that knowledge? So I like one of the things I love the best, and that's why I had you end the second part with that kind of car model that we can talk about again here. But we really talk about all the different components of reading and how they all fit together. So tell us how a child reads. So we used to think, though, it was a visual process and that somehow like I said that was a lot a lot of people thought it was something that would develop just like language develops naturally but it is something that's not natural um, and it's something that has to be taught and there are different components that go into reading and so in order to understand how you learn to read you have to just know a little bit and, you know, let's think about here some of those components. So first we have the actual phonology, the sound system, what, you know, what we're hearing, ortho orthography, which is the writing system, morphology, the meaning of parts of words, semantics, the relationships among the words, syntax, the structure, you know, grammar, uh, pragmatics, the use and interpretation of language, and discourse, the organization of language. Pragmatics, a lot of times you'll hear that term uh, for children, sometimes on the spectrum, they'll say they have a pragmatic language disorder. So it's sort of the, the social language and being able to understand underlying meanings of what people are trying to say. And advocate for themselves as right, well. Right, right. So then so, when we put all those things together, what's that mean about a skilled reader versus an unskilled reader? Okay, so a skilled reader is going to, because we know that it's not natural, right? We know that it we have got to explicitly teach it. And so a skilled reader is someone who's going to recognize words very easily and they don't have to rely on the content. You know, they're not looking back at pictures all the time to try and guess what, what's going on in the story. They're going to decode the words very effectively, very efficiently. 
if someone's a poor reader, they're not going to recognize the words very easily. They're going to have to look around a lot to see what's going on, especially when it's those picture books when they're young. You know, they're trying to guess at what is going on in the story by looking at the pictures. Um, they're going to have poor phonemic awareness, so they're going to struggle to decode words, and they're often going to guess words by either what the context is or by words that look similar. Uh, that's one way you can see maybe somebody who's very uh, cognitively a very smart kid and really they've just been memorizing the words so you find that they will replace words you'll know they're guessing because they're kind of replacing words that look similar or maybe just by hearing what what's going on with the story so far they kind of guess those words and that's how you those are little hints that you know hey maybe they're not able to do this the right way they're not really decoding the words i was just about to say that and i think also what you see with um people with um high iqs people that are typically smart but have dyslexia also is that they'll say um words with um, either prefixes or suffixes that mean the same thing, but they aren't correct for that particular word. And so they come up with these hilarious other words. We have a friend that has dyslexia and she comes up with the best words that are like, well, yes, it means the same thing, but it's not the right word. And so we always, we tease, we use her name. Like if it was my name, we would say it's an Ashleyism. Um, okay. So what's the Scarborough reading rope? I love this. Well, so this is something that when you probably go to every single conference on dyslexia, they're going to show you this picture and it breaks down all the components that go into being a skilled reader. Um, one half is actual language comprehension. So it's going to have background knowledge, your vocabulary knowledge, language structures, verbal reasoning, literacy. That's one half of being a skilled reader, right? You've got to be able to know the language, uh, the vocabulary, all that. And the other part is the word recognition. And so you have that phonological awareness, the decoding, spelling, sight word recognition. So all of these things go into being a skilled reader. You have to be competent in all of those areas in order to have you know, the twine twisting like it has here and have it completely uh, into that rope. I will tell you, you may see some other, uh, there's always a lot of research and different um, re, uh, professionals out there and some have kind of uh, introduced that maybe there's other components that might go in there, but that is, that is the most popular one that you'll see. And it really, the, the reason I have it here is to let you know that um, it, it's going to lead to our conversation later that shows that, hey, look, you can't just measure one, one thing, you know, you might measure one part of the rope and it looks good and they're strong in it. And yet there's still a lot more components that go into it to make sure that you're reading fluently. Right. And what I love about the rope when I explain it to clients is I think it's a lot like the puzzle pieces of autism. Those puzzle pieces have, you know, they each have a different pattern. And then there's like parts of the puzzle pieces within themselves that actually fit together. And that's how this reading piece is, right? So we, you know, a rope is made up of several smaller ropes. So we, we twine together little fibers to make the strings. And then we braid the strings together and then we're twisting two different strings together to make a rope. And so I love that this model kind of shows that they all have to come together in the same patterns and in something that's meaningful in order to make this rope design. And I think that's kind of the key is just like your car analogy that you gave in part two that we're going to circle back to in a moment. Um, you know, I think they all have to go together in order to make something that is meaningful. And really that kind of goes into this next slide of this language continuum, how everything kind of builds on itself in order to get to an ultimate outcome. So walk us through that. So yes, this is another way to kind of show how all of these factors are intertwined. So you've got the um, listening, speaking, ultimate, you know, going to reading and then getting those thoughts 
uh, and ideas on paper and going into writing. And we talk about a lot of the factors that have those skills that, that have to be strong in order to, um, to build and to be a fluent reader, fluent writer. So what I've done in this slide is show how if, if the listening, if there's a weakness there, you know, executive functioning is also uh, very much connected to a child's listening abilities. Um, or a language is in there too, receptive language. That's part of listening. It's how you're processing the information that comes in. So those are two things that can kind of affect that listening. It also goes into later that speaking, phonological processing, how you're getting your thoughts out. Um, that's why I said a lot of uh, children with oral language issues, if you have a child out there that is already getting speech therapy, and you have this, you know, history of dyslexia, you start seeing things, that's where, you know, that those are little red flags that can tell you, you really want to watch out for that. Um, then you've got that processing speed, you know, is, do you have a Ferrari engine or, you know, a much slower one? And so that also will affect sort of that processing of getting information in, how long it takes you to process it, or even in your mind, sort of having those, uh, those words in your head and getting them out. Uh, orthographic processing, again, like seeing that information in your head. When we say, uh, when, when you, certain words have pictures along with it, like a tree, is something where you're hearing the word, you're seeing the word, but then there's also a picture along with it. Sometimes, you know, the word and doesn't really have a picture along with it. It's just the words and the, the sounds that, that it makes when you're saying that word. So um, all of that goes into uh, the building blocks of reading. And of course, then ultimate writing. A lot of times uh, when, people talk about dyslexia or dysgraphia, they'll say that it, um, that, oh, well, you know, we have computers and we can type things out. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Now we're, there's just so much research to say, no, actually it really does matter. All of those things are connected. And so it's all a language. And so that's why I kind of have that and it's this slide in here. This process where we have to build upon the listening skills in order to get to that eventual ability to write. Um, yeah, so all of that leads to then the science of reading. What do we know about reading? Okay, so this is a phrase y'all are gonna hear a lot about. Um, you're gonna hear the keywords in dyslexia or even in all the literacy conversations about struggling readers, you're gonna hear uh, you're going to hear the word science of reading. In fact, there's even a lot of Facebook groups now. Uh, it's kind of spread across the country. There are teachers that have talked about, uh, started Facebook groups that say, you know, what I, what I didn't know about the science of reading or they have science of reading um, Facebook groups and they're talking amongst each other about, you know, what type of, what type of, program they were taught, you know, on how to work with kids. Um, you will hear maybe a, some other phrases like balanced literacy or whole language. You may hear about uh, the name Lucy Calkins. Lucy Calkins was a researcher that was behind that whole language and said, you know, kids learn if they're just exposed, if we keep reading to them, you know, and we're exposing them to it over and over again, then they're going to get it. And if we, you know, the kids that aren't reading well, it's because it wasn't really exposed to them, but really the research has shown the opposite. Number one, of course, like I said, we know now with all these functional MRIs that it is something that's neurobiological. We also know that even with kids, if that were true, that only children that weren't exposed to language had trouble reading, 
what, how does it explain those children who are exposed to a lot of language and still don't know how to read? But this is a lot of money. There was a lot, there is a lot of money in the world of publishing and, you know, they're selling these programs to school districts to use as their reading programs. And they're not based in this science of reading. There's very few universities of higher education that are teaching the science of reading. And there's still a lot of discussions and fights about it, even today with researchers in different states may have some Department of Ed groups that, you know, they are so strong on balanced literacy and their, you know, whole language. And it, it, it makes it very difficult. So, so science of reading. That, what's the question? What do we want? If, if, if that's what we don't want, then what do we want? Right, so what we want, the science of reading is gonna be delivered using structured literacy. So that's what you want to, that's what you wanna use with all children, but especially with children with dyslexia. So it's going to have all of that phonology, sound symbol association, syllable instruction, morphology, syntax, um, semantics. So again, this is, this is the way that dyslexic children should learn to read. It's gonna be explicit instruction, systematic, cumulative, and diagnostic teaching. So you're gonna, that teacher's gonna be skilled. She's gonna understand it. She's gonna start with, you know, simple concepts and build upon it and always circling back to see that we've got the foundation, you know, does the child understand the basic sound symbol association, you know, all the phonics, that's part of it. That's the beginning. And then it builds, it builds and builds. You don't want it, think of like a Jenga, you know, you don't want to have any holes in it. You want it to build. And yeah, I mean, it's a great it, example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Agnostic in the way that we teach it because data drives instruction. So we're going to go back and we're going to look to see, okay, did that work? If it did, great. Now let's, let's build upon that cumulatively. If it didn't work, then we need to circle back and hit it in some different manner before we build upon it. And that's, you know, one of the strong keys to this. So it's not just research-based. I love this slide. It's not just research-based, is it? It's systemic and it's cumulative. Right. And, and it's going to be systematic, explicit instruction. So those are the, that's what you want to be hearing. They're actually teaching you. They're not just assuming you're going to somehow through osmosis pick up reading by just being exposed to it. Now, do we, is it should you be reading to children? Of course you should. And that's how you gain knowledge and background knowledge. But remember that rope, that is only one part of it. You still have to teach explicitly all of the components of reading and the, the programs that they use. We really need to have it evidence-based, not research-based. If you will see that a lot, guys, please start noticing it research-based is not the same as evidence-based. I mean, Cosmo does research on, you know, teenage women and dating and stuff all the time. I wouldn't be basing, uh, uh, you know, school curriculum on something like that. So it, it's got to be evidence-based. It's something that actually they researched it and they found that it worked. So um, it's also something we're not going to go into all the law, but in IDEA law, it does say that you have the right to get evidence-based um, evidence instruction. So the other thing is it's got to be trained, and this is a secret sauce of dyslexia intervention. It's all about the training of the teacher. It's all about the training of the teacher. I have to tell you that again. We do not have in higher education this science of reading, okay? So most teachers have not been trained in the science of reading, and therefore they have to have some type of training outside of higher ed. And 
that is going to happen through a lot of different programs. You know, um, International Dyslexia Association has some accredited programs. They have EMSLEC. You know, there's, there's all these places where you can get certified to have this special training. Uh, here in Texas, we have a lot of what we call certified academic language therapists. Certainly they have that another all across the country, but you, you don't hear that name as much. But you'll have speech therapists a lot of times that are the dyslexia specialists. You, will, um, you may hear something like Wilson practitioner, or you will hear OG, Orton-Gillingham practitioner. So that is something that you're going to have to look into is what is the training of the person that's doing this evidence-based program with your child. And, it's and then if ask, it's okay to say, yes. oh, what is, what is so-and-so's training? Or do we have someone at this school that is certified to provide OG instruction or some kind of evidence-based instruction? That's an okay question. In fact, it's a question yeah. that you should be asking. And if the answer is, oh, well, you know, our special education director is trained in OG and she did a half day seminar for all of our special ed teachers, that's not certification. That's training by a teacher who was trained. Um, and so there's a big difference there, right? And then, it, and then when you get into the program, the program that has been researched to the point of evidence proving that it works we have to then implement the program with fidelity because we've got research and evidence that says it works, but we can't do it like not according to the way it's supposed to be done because otherwise it's not done with fidelity and it's not gonna work. That seems so easy. It, yes, it does seem easy. And, uh, but of course that's where the problem is. You know, it, it you have to do the program as it's prescribed. Okay, um, what are the common problems with dyslexia intervention in schools, given what we just went over, that it has to be an evidence-based program, it needs to be done by somebody who's properly trained, and of course, it has to be done with fidelity. So that's gonna get me into one of the biggest problems with dyslexia intervention in schools. What is it? It is that they're not doing the program as prescribed. They will either shorten the days, they may shorten the time. Uh, they don't use the dyslexia teachers appropriately. Maybe there's a principal that, you know, maybe doesn't understand the way that that program needs to be done explicitly. You know, it's going to take two to three years, four to five times a week. And that, you know, you can't cut that time and think that it's going to have the same outcome. And so what may happen in some schools is, you know, maybe they'll have a teacher out or something and they'll say, oh, let's grab the dyslexia teacher. I mean, there's only like four kids in that class. They can miss one day here or they don't schedule the time properly. Maybe the way that their hours are done in school, they say, oh, we do block schedule, we do this. So we're only gonna see this child twice a week because we do block schedules or something. No, I mean, it has to be done the way that it is supposed to be done. And um, when I say shortened days and shortened time, sometimes, it may have nothing to do with the teacher shortening the days. It may be your child was diagnosed later and they, they jump, they drop them into that class later. And so they've kind of inadvertently shortened the days for that child. And we'll right. get into that part too, but it does need to be done in the, in the order, you know, in the, with the fidelity as it's prescribed. One thing I have parents do, um, and I did this one time with a mom. I said, you know, ask your child if you, you know, let's say Miss Smith is the dyslexia teacher, kind of get a calendar out and say, oh, did you see Miss Smith today? You know, what was a class like? Boy, you'll learn so much from your kids if you talk to them about their classes. Um, oh no, Miss Smith's been out. Oh no, you know. Um, we, yeah. we, we never get started. So-and-so was always in, was really in trouble today and we had to blah, blah, blah. I mean, guys, you can do this not just with your dyslexia intervention, but 
any of the intervention and that will tell you a lot about what's going on in class. This tells you a lot. You know, I, I was thinking about this before we came on today and I was thinking we're kind of all like armchair scientists right now in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we all think we know about the vaccines and we've all seen how these vaccines came to be developed how the protocols came to be developed. We understand that they have to be kept at a certain temperature. They have to be given a certain number of days apart. They have to, um, and if they aren't given a certain number of days apart because we do it like England did it, um, you know, what England did was they said, we're gonna give everybody a first dose. And then the second doses might be a little bit later than what's prescribed, but we think that still gives you whatever percent of efficacy as opposed to the 92 or 93% of efficacy. This is very much the same way. We have data that says, okay, we, if we give this kind of instruction 30 minutes per day, four days per week, we're going to have this kind of increase in result. But if we only do it 20 minutes per day, two times per week, and they're separated by three days in between, then we're going to have this kind of result, which is going to be not as good. And so what I encourage you to do is if you identify a problem like that, using the strategies that Daphne just talked about, that you hop on the company's websites and you look and you say, okay, what does research say about doing, for example, Wilson or Barton or Orton-Gillingham at this level, at this amount of time or with these breaks or whatever, there's probably going to be research that shows that. And so that kind of, your next slide, Daphne says, why is fidelity so important? And you've got a science example also. Oh, yes, I have somebody, uh in an emergency room and it has a quotes, I didn't think it would matter if I just took my pills once a week. I mean, you wouldn't go to your doctor and, you know, if you, if your blood pressure medicine, you wouldn't just take that once a week and expect to have, you know, the outcomes that your doctor has for you. And that's the same thing with dyslexia intervention. I promise you everyone, if we thought you could do dyslexia intervention once a week, twice a week and have progress, we would all be doing that, okay? Until we find something else, it just doesn't work. There's no research out there. So if you get nothing else out of these conversations, if it's not being done four to five times a week, you know, 45 minutes, to an hour, it's not going to work. I, I promise, please send me, if you all have, if you know that there's a program out there that does it for less than that time, I promise you send it to me because there just isn't anything out there. So that alone will tell you whether or not it's being done properly at your school. Yeah. Okay, the other problem. Yeah, give it to us. The other problem is that the school might offer a program that's not appropriate for the specific needs of your child. So again, with the medical uh, analogy, you may have um, you know, an upset stomach and so Tums might be good for that, but you could have an ulcer, would Tums be good for that? No. And that's the same thing with dyslexia intervention. The, the solution depends on what the individual issues are with your child. And so what happens in a lot of schools is they purchased one program, okay? So they just have, you know, Wilson or they only have Barton. And I'm gonna get into those programs in a little bit. Uh, don't just think that because they say the name of a program, just know that all those programs have different programs within them. So sometimes if you just say Wilson or whatever, it, it doesn't really mean that it's the actual Wilson program, but anyways, so the school is gonna offer a program that may not even work for your child. It might be what the district offers. Uh, maybe they don't have a teacher trained in that. And the last reason that they might give you is that they just don't have the money or budget for that. But what you need to know is that they are not allowed to say, we don't have the money for that. Just like if you were to get, you know, if you went into the hospital and you needed 
an MRI or a CT scan and it was a lot of money, I mean, wouldn't that be crazy if they came back to you and say, you know what, we're not going to pay for that. That's really, you know, this is too much and your child can't get chemo or your child can't get all this. No, I mean, we have federal laws that say that they have to get, they have to give you a free and appropriate education and they can't say that it's cost prohibitive. And we even have uh, cases, uh, you know, I cite one here with one of our, Ashley and our favorite guys, Pete Wright, <laughs> uh, Florence County versus Carter. So it was even a Supreme Court case where the school, you know, didn't have an appropriate dyslexia program and the parents got reimbursement for a private school uh, because, you know, they were just giving their one size fits all program. Yeah, so, and, that, and that is something that we see time and time and time again. And sometimes it might take you going out and figuring out what the appropriate program is yourself and then coming in and saying, okay, this is what I'd like and here's the cost and, you know, can you do it? But um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's a sad, sad reality that happens very often. Right. Um, okay. And you can't, I will tell you one thing to that. You were saying you could go to them and tell them the program. A school doesn't have to do the program that you want for your child, but they do have to provide, a, again, remember, a research, I mean, an evidence-based program that is specific for your child. So sometimes I've, I've talked to schools and they'll say, uh, you know, I'll say, hey, we need like an OG program or whatever. Well, we don't have to do that program. You know, we can pick the methodology and I say, well, okay, that's fine. But guess what? All the research, you do have to give a research-based, I mean, an evidence-based program and all the evidence-based programs that work with dyslexia are gonna be a lot of those OG programs. So, you know, um, they the have to end up giving it anyways. I'm sorry? And the child has to show progress, you know. Right, and they have to show progress. Right, appropriate progress. Right. So then another problem that you've got is when we don't have that cumulative effect. You know, we talked about the cumulative effect and sometimes teachers kind of put, I, I call it conveyor belt teaching, when they say, okay, we've done this, now we move on to this, and we did that, now we move on to that, and then we did this, and we didn't move on to that, and I'll tell you, I have noticed this in my, um, it is a remote kind of teacher to my child, in that one of the things he does is this online program, and it just goes from here to here to here to here to here, and I've said time and time again, man, if I had a felt board and I could work on it this way, and if I had these manipulatives, letter tiles or whatever, I could work on it this way. And so I've made all these materials to go back and um, hammer in concepts or review the concepts again. But so often teachers, even with the materials that they have, will um, just kind of put them on a conveyor belt and say, okay, we did S-H-T-H-W-H and whatever the other H, what I can't, I lost track, but you know, we did the H brothers. Now we're moving on to whatever else. And right. we don't circle back to make sure that a child understood the concept and that we're ready to build on it. Right, right. So, uh, and this is really important when you're teaching reading and when you're doing dyslexia intervention, you have to make sure that if a child didn't understand a concept, you have to circle back. Some programs will have mastery checks that tell you, hey, look, if your child didn't at least get this amount of questions right, or they didn't get these skills, you need to go back to, to lesson one. And um, some will also say, well, as long as you circle back, maybe they didn't get it, but you should sometime kind of go back. Some don't even let you go forward. Others will let you go forward and tell you to kind of circle back. But, but the idea is that you're going to get it at a pace so that they build that foundation. There's gotta be that progression of the lessons that are built on the child's mastery of it and not on the school calendar. Like, oh, we got to hurry up and get through this book because, you know, we're supposed to do the first year of this program and, you know, we're going to go through all the concepts. And so th that is a big problem. 
The other thing is that, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, that they are um, putting a child, maybe let's say they're on a concept 10 and they have that child, um, you know, the child started in the middle of the year and every, they've already done everything. And so they just think that that child's going to somehow catch up and they have these gaps. And I will tell you, it's real interesting. Sometimes you can tell when you do an assessment of someone who is middle or high school, you can tell when they've had a little bit of intervention because some of those scores will come out pretty good. And so, you know, they had maybe a, um, you know, a good phonics program or whatever. So they picked up some skills, but they don't know it all. And um, it's just really important to build on that and to keep going. Sometimes they'll have these OG programs in elementary school. And then the child, if they got identified in fifth grade, maybe they don't continue it for the middle school. They say, oh, well, we don't have somebody in the middle school there. No, you, they have to finish the program, okay? You're not just gonna stop. There's other concepts in there. Right, um, yeah. Well, if a child's already having trouble learning and then we get them in a system and they're used to that system, systematic learning, then why change the system? That makes no sense at all. And I just love what you say, what you need to know. The program has to be delivered the way the program was designed to be delivered. And so to a certain extent, once we choose a program, so long as the program is working, we have to rely on that program to say, okay, you know, how do we know if we reach mastery to the point that we can move on while continuing to circle back? So instead of that conveyor belt, we're gonna do a squiggly line where we keep circling back. We teach and we circle back. We teach and we circle back and we continue that progression progression and moving along in that cumulative way. So that kind of goes on to your next problem that you've considered and that is, what if the child is making no progress? Right, so sometimes it is an evidence-based program they are doing it as, it as prescribed, you know, all those things that we said are important are there, but your child still doesn't make progress. And so in those situations, you have to go back to our earlier conversation. What are the comorbid conditions? You know, maybe the, there was more of an oral language issue that didn't get fully addressed. I will tell you, if you have oral language, again, I'll say it again and again and again, it makes the dyslexia intervention very difficult. Try and get as much of that speech therapy as possible, as early as possible. Um, so sometimes you might have other reasons that you'll have to go into, maybe uh, ADHD, maybe it's not addressed. Um, maybe your child, you might consider medication. <laughs> there is a, there's a woman in Dallas that does evaluations at, um, at this really great school, Shelton School in Dallas. And she laughs all the time. She says, if there are any parents out there that don't want to give ADHD medication to their kids, tell them to call me because I was that mom that wouldn't give it. And she goes, I did the red dyes. I did the vitamins. I did everything for years. And she goes, and now she says, I cannot believe I waited so long. So um, again, just well, make sure and look at all those factors, maybe the anxiety and depression, all those things, make sure that you look at that. And if a child isn't making progress and it's because of some kind of comorbidity, then maybe the program needs to be implemented slightly differently. Because as you have right. indicated, if a child's not making progress and the program's being implemented with fidelity, then there's some kind of breakdown that's happening someplace else. And so we can still implement the program with fidelity, but do it that's in a way that's more tailored to the child. And I love that you say on this slide, that might mean that you might need more one-on-one -on -one instruction, that the small group instruction isn't working because for you to make sense of it, you have to learn it in a different way. So like for my right. son to learn, it's got to have a physical component. We've got to be throwing bean bags, jumping off of chairs. Um, we've got to be moving and getting a lot of sensory input. And so that he has worked before. He doesn't have dyslexia. He has Down syndrome and a cognitive impairment. And, and lots of language um, impediments along the way. And so 
when we work with dyslexia consultants, they tend to want him to sit in his chair and just listen. And I say, oh, well, we can still implement your program with Fidelity, but we've got to then structure it in a way that also meets the way that he learns. And that, quite frankly, I, I agree with what you've said in this slide, has to be done in a one-on-one -on -one environment. Because to find another person that's just like Jack is, you know, nearly, <laughs> nearly impossible. Right. So you're changing the pacing, you're modifying, you still have the fidelity, but you're, mod you're modifying it to fit the specific needs of that child. So maybe you're breaking up the lessons if they're supposed to be 45 minutes and your child can only do 20, you know, you're going to go at a different pace. So basically you may need to slow down in some areas that you're having more problems with, and then you could speed up maybe in other areas that you've already, you know, have mastery of. And so it's that, it's that secret sauce of having that teacher being able to say, you know what, I think they got this, or, ooh, this is a topic they're really not understanding. I'm not going to change programs, but maybe I'm going to add to and supplement with another program to get this concept down. And I will tell you that all of this information, maybe if you're a parent out there and you're going, oh my gosh, how am I even going to read, how am I going to do this? You know, how do I know? Sometimes you might consider, even if you can't, um, you know, pull your child out, maybe the school say no to the one-on-one -on -one and you don't know what's going on, you, you know, um, but it doesn't seem to be working. Sometimes hiring somebody just once a semester, once or twice, hire somebody that doesn't even work for the school, that is a really skilled dyslexia teacher and specialist and say, will you take a look? I need a second opinion. You know, give me just a one hour read with them. I mean, obviously you all know that you get an independent educational evaluation. So for those big evaluations, the FIEs that they do, um, you know, you have uh, you do have the right to get another opinion, you know, that independent evaluation. But what I'm talking about is much smaller. You're paying somebody for an hour or two of intervention to try and check in and tell you what might be going on with your child. That's a great check-in. Yeah, yeah, it's the check-ins. The, the nice check-ins. And I agree that that's a good strategy if you can afford it and if that's accessible and you can find the right person and all of it. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, if it's, if, if, it, if you're, you don't have to do it that often, you just don't want to find out at the end of it that it didn't work for your child. And sometimes the progress that they show you and we'll be going into that makes you think that it might be working, but it, it really isn't. So, so um, I wanna talk about, you know, at the beginning of this, the very first disclaimer that you gave was, I don't think any of this is happening because teachers or schools are bad people or, you know, kind of wanna buck the system. I really think that this is kind of, a, there's a bigger why behind it and it's kind of faultless. The, the school isn't, um, at fault for this. And so why do you think that dyslexia interventions are oftentimes done improperly? I think um, one of the biggest reasons is that they just don't know. They don't know about the science of reading. Uh, they, they don't know maybe about the law that says every child is supposed to get a free and appropriate education at no, you know again no cost so that money can't be an issue um i think that the, the system is so big that even if you did find one teacher or one principal that knew the science of reading knew what needed to be done would like to get all these programs in their schools they're they don't have enough power to change it um, that's where that, that partnership is going to come in with parents. If you do have a, a principal or a teacher like that, you know, certainly use your voice to try and get changes in your district. Um, I certainly, you know, I have done that and had some success, but then I also have some other friends and parents that have done that. And there's, there's a pushback about it, but just know that, you know, even if you do have that one teacher that's on your side and you're not as worried about it, you should worry about it because you might have a good teacher one year and then they pull it the next. So 
you know, it's just really big. It's really broken. We need to change it. But yet when we're in that meeting with about your child, you know, none of this matters. You have to advocate for your child. We don't have five or 10 years to wait for the system to end. And that's of course why we have these podcasts. That's why we're trying to help you out. Uh, we've, we've got to, uh, you know, simultaneously just with the, even though we're doing that advocacy, making sure that we're advocating, we're going into those meetings, we have our parent hat on, and they don't get to say they don't have money or whatever it is that they might I say. I agree entirely. I'm going to skip, not skip over, but let's move quickly through progress monitoring. I think it's really smart to, to touch on the idea that as we're monitoring progress, specifically for children with dyslexia, that we need to break goals and benchmarks down so that we're really monitoring all those different components of reading. We're monitoring the fluency, the phonological awareness, the comprehension, reading accuracy, spelling, all of those things we're monitoring very specifically. And that means that we need to write goals or benchmarks for those. Um, and so, and we're gonna kind of go through that abbreviated pieces of the car here in this discussion to Daphne, but talk about all of the different things with like leveled literacy and DRAs and SRAs and all of those things like so confusing. And does any of that actually mean anything or should we just be looking at progress monitoring? It's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> Well, the reason I put some of these on there is because you may have seen them. When you go into the meetings, they're going to show you graphs and you're just going to be glazed over. Um, ironically, most of them just all say they're doing better. You know, they are all going up a lot of times. Um, and so what I wanted you to know about these tools is that you have to see what they're actually measuring. And that's why I gave the analogy of the car. Uh, imagine the I station or the DRA or the SRA or any of these levels. It's just like that car if you had that flat tire and you've got an air pressure gauge. Does an air pressure gauge really measure and will tell you whether or not now there's air and your tire's fine? Well, yes, it does. So is it a good tool? Yes, it's a good tool, but it's a good tool for the tire. And that's the same thing about some of these uh, programs and progress monitoring tools that the schools use. They may be measuring one aspect Okay, remember all those things that we talked about and all the components that go into it. They're measuring one part that goes into reading. And so if your child has no problem with that area, then, you know, it's not that it was wrong of them to use that. It's just not an area that you ever had as a concern. You want to measure the areas that they specifically have an issue with. And so when you see those reports that the school gives you, you want to ask, what is this test measuring? Because it's not going to just be there's one test that's going to measure every little thing in reading. They might try and do it. But again, if you just combine all those scores, they might come out as average. And but you might also want to talk that. about environment because some of these, a lot of these are done technologically. And so they're done, you know, only on Tuesdays at two o'clock when we're in the computer lab or only on the computer, only on an iPad, that sort of thing. And so sometimes we're also thinking about like fine motor skills of actually working the mouse, you know, for younger kids and that right. kind of thing. Are they assisted? Are they not assisted? That kind of thing. So a lot of times environmental factors will come into these. And I've actually recommended that either I or a parent goes in and observes a child when taking some of these assessments to see where we are. Um, Daphne, I want to skip over the next slide, which is super comprehensive, super helpful. It's a list of different reading tests and what they test, because I want to get to kind of the, the girth of what we should be monitoring. And these are our standardized tests, of course. But um, you know, we kind of went into the 
car model before. And I love that we're starting off with this car. So the car has a flat tire, cracked windshield, and the engine needs oil. It's a, it's a jalopy. Um, and so now we kind of translate that into dyslexia, right? So the cracked windshield, we're going to call fluency and the oil we're going to call comprehension and the flat tire, we're going to call accuracy. So what if you could only pick one of those? What are you looking to monitor? What's the big thing that we want to make sure we've got? Well, one thing I would say is fluency. It doesn't mean you don't measure all the other things, but that one, I will say in most of, in most of the IEPs, I always have an oral reading fluency goal. And the reason that I said, if you could just pick one, fluency is really an important one is because fluency is the best predictor of whether or not somebody is a skilled reader. There's so much research that shows that those two numbers are connected. And it makes sense if you think about it. If you're reading a passage and you're mispronouncing every word and you're getting it wrong and you're reading and you're stopping all the time, you're, it's gonna affect everything else, right? How are you gonna understand what you're reading if it was so hard for you to get it all out? So, the, so that's what is really important. If you were to just measure comprehension, you might put that child, they say, oh, they didn't understand what they were reading. Oh, okay, but we'll just give them this, we're, we're just gonna teach more vocabulary. They need to learn more of this. They need to learn, you know, we're gonna give them a program for comprehension. Well, what if they, they are not understanding it because they can't even read it well? That affects what kind of intervention you do. If their oral reading fluency is so bad and their comprehension will first take care of the fluency, okay? Make sure they're able to decode those words. Um, now, again, if you do have it, this is probably about 80% maybe of, uh, of the kids are going to have if they're having a lot of the other issues, this is going to be a really good goal, a really good uh, progress monitoring to check. Um, but then I will say, again, remember how we were talking a lot about those kids that maybe got partially remediated. I see this a lot in high school, middle and high school kids that kind of had some dyslexia intervention. They could read really well, but they don't really understand it. And yeah, and then it's kind of hard because it might not get diagnosed dyslexic. They might just be, you know, say it's a comprehension, you know, SLD, or they won't qualify because they don't have that phonological, you know, they're reading fine. But for those kids, it's going to be, Maybe they were, they were, they had some of that, but it wasn't really cemented. They didn't, they're in, they're decoding, but they're not encoding. So it hasn't really solidified um, in their, in their brains. And so, um, but for most kids, it's going to be that, that fluency. And, and of course, this slide just talks about how that's so important to, um, to being a skilled reader. It's right. going to predict a lot of that. Yeah, and I like I like your prediction points at the bottom. It highly correlates with reading comprehension. So you know, with the exception of the the kiddos that you just described, it's probably going to be a good indicator of comprehension. It predicts later reading achievement. So if we're a fluent reader earlier, then we're probably going to continue to achieve well um, in later years. And it's causally contributed. It, it causally contributes to improved comprehension as well. And so as our fluency increases, our comprehension should increase too. It's not that we're just teaching to fluency, but if you're just testing one, I like that your recommendation is to test fluency. Um, so do you like the dibbles for fluency or not? Tell me about dibbles. So dibbles is just one of the progress monitoring tools that it, it they've come up with, and it was Jan Hasbrook as part of it. In fact, there's a great website reading, uh, reading. Oh my gosh, my mind just went blank. I'll think of it here in a second. Reading rockets. Yes, they'll have information about how to measure fluency, a lot of good information on it. But the dibbles is basically just having your child read a cold read. So it's something they haven't read before. They read it to you for, for one minute and you just count how many errors they got 
uh, wrong, subtract that. And of course, here are sort of the standards that will kind of tell you where your child should be reading, how many, how many words per minute they should be reading, depending on what grade they are. And so yeah, just download something. I mean, you can get free images on just a Google search and you can certainly get something very inexpensive on teachers pay teachers as well. And so right. it's good kind of just one of those benchmarks, one criterion that you can look at to see where a child might be. And I always encourage, you know, if, if you followed me long enough, you know that I'm encouraging parents to work at home, to progress monitor at home, to keep up with that information at home as well. Now you've also got some additional norms and I think this helps to conceptualize um, another criterion for parents. So tell us about this kind of words per minute Sorry. Right. Well, it's related. They use these minutes to make sure you have the updated version, the 2017. So it's, um, again, words correct per minute. I will tell you that you have to uh, make sure that it's a cold read. So you're asking, you know, if they're telling you, oh, look, he's reading, you know, 84 words per minute or whatever, he's right on track. Well, make sure that whatever they're reading is actually grade level, okay? And so it's not cat in the hat, you know, or war and peace. It depends on what they're, what, what they're reading, make sure it's grade level. But then also not that they've done it, read it 50 times. Well, of course, they're gonna read it fluently if they've been exposed to it many times. So you wanna make sure that they, that it's a cold read. And guys, you can do this at home. There's nothing more powerful then giving your child a grade level text, get a book, something they haven't read that's that they should know how to read and just record them reading it. And that'll tell you all you need to know about how they're doing in school. And so, that so this next slide, us, yeah. Yeah, this takes us to the last slide that we're gonna talk about for today. If you remember one goal, like if you could have one idea, um, then it should be this one. And, and of course, this is kind of parenthetically for almost every child with dyslexia, but what do you love if, if you only get one goal? I would say like, for example, I put Lauren will read blank. So you have to look up on that sheet, you know, what, what should somebody be reading to have the beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of year. So you put that number there, words correct per minute. So it's correct. So you're not gonna just, they may have done 84 words, but they got, you know, 20 of them wrong. You want how many were actually correct. Cold read, that means they didn't read it 10 times. And uh, grade level text, you could say grade level text. If somebody's really behind, that might be too high of a goal. Let's say somebody is in seventh grade and they're reading on a third grade level, you might want to put their instructional level might be, you know, fourth grade and so you want them to go up maybe a year or two or whatever so uh but it should be grade level i mean the the goal is to close the gap not just make progress so even if they are making progress it should be more progress than they're normally going to make in a year because if your kid always goes up one year and everybody else does you still have that gap Right. And of course, this is all within the caveat of we would monitor progress on a lot of different things as I kind of glossed over that slide. But if you're only monitoring on fluency, this would be it. And fluency could be a good indicator of progress generally right. across the board. So Daphne, I cannot thank you enough for joining me for this three-part three part really um, content-rich podcast. You wanted for me to put up this last slide, um, which I think is kind of a great what to do. And I'll just remind everybody that you've got a lot more slides at the end of your program. The slides are up on my website. Um, and this comes with the big old apology of, sorry, the audio didn't work at the conference back in January. So why don't you wrap it up with this um, one last slide? Okay, so the pro what you need to know about any program, like I said, any good program for dyslexia, if it's not being done two to three years, 45 minutes, an hour, about, you know, four to five days a week, 
It's probably not an evidence-based program, but you can always contact the publisher. All these programs, just because somebody says Wilson or Barton or whatever, they could, they, sometimes they sell multiple different programs. Some might be, you know, like Wilson has one that's called Foundations. Well, that's just for kindergartners. They're not going to do a Wilson, you know, you don't want foundations to be done for somebody that's in high school. So make sure you get the exact name of the program, call the publisher, get online. Sometimes they even tell you who's licensed. I know Wilson gives you a list of who actually went and got the training in, in your area that they can give you. So contact them, say, this is what my child's doing. What do you think? What should I be looking for? Um, make sure that you keep records and samples of all your child's work. Uh, if, it, if it isn't on paper, if you don't have the proof of it, you know, it, it's like it didn't happen. So keep all your records, ask your child how things are going. And most importantly, go with your gut. You know, if you see your child struggling, um, you know, and something just doesn't seem right, go with it and keep looking and keep trying to get help. That's great advice. Progress monitoring and trust your gut. I love it. Daphne, thank you so much. This has really sure. been an honor. Will you come back and, and yes. Awesome. Sure. All right. Well, thank you. Bye. And there you have it. If you did not listen to parts one and two, go back and check those out. Super duper helpful information. Daphne's slides are on my website. I also have this in YouTube if you want to watch the slides as we're talking about it. The presentation is live in YouTube just as the podcast. Um, next week we will switch gears and start talking about a different topic. I'm so happy to have had Daphne. This was a great solution to the fact that her presentation was not pitch perfect um, in our conference that we had in January. And I've loved the feedback that you have given me from this podcast as well. I'll see you next week, same time.